You know, I'm really worried that uh, my notes are going to blow off of this music stand. So uh, if all the prayer warriors could just be praying for me while I'm up here, you know, just to be sure it doesn't completely uh, blow away and become a total disaster. Can you guys hear me okay? If I stand like here, can you, is that like, is that good? Yeah. I like the, the speakers are, are like just right here. So like, I can't hear what they're doing. So uh, if you guys at any point can't hear me, just kind of, you know, go like this and I'll stand a little closer to the microphone. Okay, cool. Cool. Well, uh, hey, hi, everybody. Uh, nice to see everyone here tonight. Uh, and, and nice to see everyone just like rolling with the punches, um, you know, just wearing masks. And I was thinking about this earlier today that, um, you know, it's just it's, it's pretty, pretty cool to get to live through this time. I mean, I don't know of a time that has been kind of this unprecedented for the history of 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 God's people, the church. Uh, you know, by the way, Thrive, we say, is not a church, but we are a member of the capital C church. All tr- people who believe in Jesus are a part of that. And, uh, you know, this is something that, you know, one day you're going to probably look back on, be able to tell your kids and grandparents that you actually lived through. You know, like I was there the first Sunday when the entire church around the world, like, hopped on this thing called Zoom in order to have a church service on Sunday morning. Um, so just, you know, man, way to be here. I um, mean, way to just continue to be um, connected and involved with other people, because um, that's a big deal. So, so the psalm that Haley just read, Psalm 42, um, is part of a series that we're doing on the book of Psalms. Now, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. And what we've been doing as we've been going through this series is just looking at a psalm each week. And we've asked ourselves the question, what do the Psalms have to teach us about how to pray? Uh, you know, I want to just start off this evening by just making a candid observation about, about being human. And my candid observation about being human is that if you're human, being communicating well is really, really hard. You know, I can't tell you the number of times um, I've just, you know, been in a conversation with someone. And, and before long, it's just clear that, like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, like, I kind of get mealy-mouthed and I'll stumble over my words and I'll just wind up making a big fool of myself. You know, if that's what it's like to try to communicate with another human being, and uh, I'm sure that many of you have kind of been where I've been, you know, just imagine what it would be like to try to communicate to God. You know, on the one hand, like, prayer is one of the most simple things that there is, but prayer is also one of the most challenging things there is. And so what we need is a teacher. And what the book of Psalms is, is that teacher. And so the psalm we're looking at tonight, Psalm 42, is one of the psalms, one of the 150 psalms. It's one of the most famous psalms in the Bible. And it's a psalm that's about a pretty serious topic. Um, it's a psalm that's about depression. I don't know if you would have gotten that by, by just reading through it once, but it's a psalm that's about depression. It was written by a man who was depressed And he's writing about his experience of being depressed. And he doesn't actually just give us his experience of depression, but he also, in this psalm, is going to give us a path for getting through it. And so what I want to do tonight is look at Psalm 42 under three headings. They all start with P. Um, So I want to encourage you, if you're taking notes, just remember the three Ps. And then, actually, you want to have a Bible in front of you on your phone or if you've brought a a, a real one, um, just to follow along, because I'll be going pretty, pretty thoroughly through here and just pointing out some different things. So... The three Ps tonight. This psalm's going to tell us something about the problem, this problem of depression. It's going to tell us something about the prescription for it. There you go. See, what did I, what did I tell you? Yeah, uh, come on, you guys. Like, help me out here. You've got you to pray more. Um, it's all right. I recovered. Okay, so number one, the problem. Number two, the prescription. And then at the very end, it actually gives you the physician behind the prescription. So you got a problem, you got a prescription, you've got the physician. So uh, number one, the problem. The basic problem <clears throat> of this psalm is laid out in the first two verses. In the first two verses, 
Uh, verse 1 gives you the problem as a metaphor, and then verse 2 explains what the metaphor means. So let me look, here's verse 1. It says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now, the, uh, uh, it, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to have to, just going to have to roll with the punches, just like all of you. Ooh, wow, that's, that's, man, Tristan, that's good. Uh, Devante, do you, do, do you mind? Can I? I feel like this is a, this is like a, a $30 object. I've, I've tried to buy one of these before. These things aren't, these things ain't cheap. Cole Martin, ladies and gentlemen, give, give the man a hand. <laughs> okay, so, so verse one, let me just read this one more time. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. So the image here, you know, if you're imagining this, is of a deer in the wilderness that's so, so thirsty because it can't find any water. And in verse two, what it tells you is that this is actually meant to be a picture of spiritual thirst. That this is a picture of what it looks like to be thirsting for God. So, so what do we have here? What we have here is we have what you might call a description of spiritual dryness. It's not that the psalmist doesn't believe in God. It's also not that the psalmist has lost his belief in God. What he's lost is he's lost his experience of God's presence. Notice in verse 2, he calls God the living God. So he knows that having faith, you know, being a person of faith, it's way more than just believing a bunch of doctrines It's way more than just believing a bunch of like abstract intellectual truths in your head. It's to have a relationship. It's to actually experience awe and intimacy with God. And so what he tells you here is that that is what he's lost. He's lost the experience of awe and intimacy with God. Now, I hate to break this to you, but what this psalm is describing is something that just about every Christian who walks with God for any length of time is going to experience. A season where God feels absent and where your prayers feel like they're bouncing off a brass ceiling, and where the Bible feels like sandpaper against your soul. And in fact, when you, when you look through you know, the, the, the stories of, of, of Christians down through the ages, Christians in every time, every place, tons of them will give some kind of account of having had an experience like this. So I'm just going to read you one example. Uh, you know, some of you guys might have read, there's this little devotional, this famous devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. Anyone ever read that before to stick up a hand? Yeah, okay. It's not quite as popular maybe as it was 10 years ago. I'm a 90s kid, so, you know, I've got all that 90s kid stuff. Uh, anyway, the guy who wrote that was a guy named Oswald Chambers, and, and he tells about this experience that ha- happened actually when, when he was in his 20s, so about our age. And I'm just going to read you what he, what he says. He says, For four years, nothing but the overruling grace of God and the kindness of friends kept me out of an asylum. God used me during those years, but I had no conscious communion with him. The Bible was the dullest, most uninteresting book in existence, and the sense of depravity, the vileness, and bad-motivedness of my nature was terrific. So what he's saying is, like, I went through this period, it was this four years worth of, of just feeling completely separate from God, and just feeling like a deep sense of my own sin, feeling like the Bible wasn't speaking to me. And if you look through at other lives, you know, same thing, like Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher in, in England, you know, about 100 years ago. He suffered from depression. Uh, there was another guy named Adoniram Judson. He was the first North American foreign missionary. He went through a nervous breakdown. So, so spiritual dryness is a very common condition. 
And in fact, I even want to go even further and say, it's probably fair to say that it's an inevitable condition. Because the Bible tells us that God tests us, God refines us, and he puts us through times that are hard and challenging because he wants to grow us. And you know, what, what, what I'm thinking here are the times in your life where like you go through them and you say to yourself, like that sucked. <laughs> like I don't ever want to live through that again. But at the same time, you, you look back on that and you say, that was so good. Like I grew so much because of that sucky experience. So spiritual dryness, I'm, I'm going to say that it's not only a common condition, I'm also going to say to some extent it's an, it's an inevitable condition because we have a God who's willing to actually put us through the hard things in order to grow us. So uh, what that means, by the way, is, you know, maybe you're not going through that right now, but just, just saying, if you're not, you know, listen up anyway, because I hate to break it to you, but chances are you'll probably go through this at some point or another. So that's verses one and two. And then just really quick, I want to just look at a couple more of these first verses here, three and four, kind of gives you a couple of associated symptoms with this thing that I'm calling spiritual dryness. So look at verse three. So verse three says, my tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, where is your God? So in other words, what we find out here is that the guy who wrote this psalm is being publicly shamed. You know, like his spiritual struggle is not just private. It's so significant that other people can see it and they're mocking him for it. And and notice here that what they're not saying is they're not saying, you know, hey, like why the long face? You know, they don't say, you know, can't you just pull it together? The, The thing that they say, they say, where is your God? And what that's getting at, I think, is that in times of spiritual dryness, the voice of the enemy is going to go after your relationship with God. The voice of the enemy is going to say, gee, it sure seems like God has abandoned you, you know? You know, it sure seems like God doesn't really love you. It sure seems like God is gonna hang you out to dry. The lies of the enemy are often loudest when your spirit feels driest. So in verse three, there's one associated symptom, the lies can get louder. And then in verse four, there's another associated symptom. And that's the fact that a lot of times you can feel more isolated. So in verse four, he has this little interesting thing here that he says. Uh, He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. And that's just basically a really complicated way of saying that like he's remembering going to church. You're saying like, I'm remembering what it was like to be with the people of God, like to be with other Christians. And in fact, this verse was kind of the whole reason I I was drawn to this psalm tonight. I was like, you know, man, this is something they're going to be able to relate to. You know, like like for the last 12 weeks, you know, we've been having to do online Thrive. And, And probably one of the things that's been hardest, I would imagine, for many of us about lockdown is the lack of Christian fellowship. And the reason that that can be so hard is because Everything is always so much easier when you're surrounded by other people that, that love you, that love God, that, that are able to kind of be in your corner. And in fact, you know, this, this was like a very significant thing to me back when, when I, was, I was in high school. I remember being in high school and this was kind of the season where like my own faith was beginning to blossom for the first time. Every Thursday after school, I went to this little, little after school Bible study club that was led by this friend of mine. And it was like the most ragtag, you know, like the smallest little group. But man, I, I, I longed for Thursdays every single week because it meant that I got to be with other, other believers. It was, it, was, it was that significant to me. And so this is kind of what, what uh, Psalm 42 is, is getting at, that like one of the associated symptoms of spiritual dryness is that a lot of times it can hit you when you're in a season of isolation. 
And if you remember, there's a part in the Bible where it describes the devil as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, which is a terrifying image because if you think about a lion, a lion is not going to go after the, the antelope that's at the center of the herd. He's going to go after the antelope that's the stray, that's fallen away from the rest of the group and is easier to get. So do you see what I mean? Here, here's sort of the picture that we've, been get, we've gotten so far. What, what we're talking about here in Psalm 42 Spiritual dryness, you could even call it spiritual depression. And it's a season where God feels far away, where you're not experiencing his love. A season where the lies may get louder, the isolation may get thicker. And let me just ask you, you don't need to raise your hand or anything, but I just want to ask you, is this something that any of you can relate to? I don't know the answer to that question, but my guess is that some of you probably can. And in fact, some of you may very well feel like you're in that kind of state right now. Maybe because for the last, you know, three, four months, you've been in isolation. You haven't had other people around you who've been able to encourage you. This psalm speaks directly to you. So, just step back with me for a minute. I want to pause here and just observe a couple of things that we've learned so far. Because there are two things that are implied that are are pretty remarkable truths about the human condition that, that are already implied in just the first four verses. Let me give you both of them. Number one. What this psalm tells you is something very important and something even very countercultural about human nature. If you look at the, at, the, at the Bible as a whole, it has a pretty nuanced view of what it means to be human. On the one hand, it would agree with our modern secular culture that human beings are physical beings. You know, so if you have a problem, chances are there's some kind of biochemical explanation for it. And it could very well be the case that there's actually a pill out there for whatever it is. But on the other hand, the Bible would disagree with our secular culture because it would say that we're actually far more than just physical beings. We're spiritual beings. We're body, soul, and spirit. Uh, for, for probably, what, 12 years, my, my mom was a pediatrician. She practiced here in Gig Harbor. In fact, every now and then I sometimes meet uh, people who, who say, oh, hey, like your mom was my doctor, which is kind of fun for me. One of the things that she did was, uh, as a doctor was she would oftentimes treat a lot of teenagers with anxiety and depression. And so she would start off by asking all the right medical questions, you know, tell me about your eating habits, tell me about your sleeping habits. And at the end of the consultation, it, you know, usually she'd end by prescribing them like a medication, a pill of some kind. But my mom is a Christian, and one of the things that I remember her telling me is that she never felt satisfied, that that was all that she was able to do. You know, not that she didn't think that the pill wasn't important. Of course the pill was important, but she just realized that what, what we all need deep down is way more than just being handed a pill. What we need is something that feeds not just body, not just soul, but our spirits. We're creatures of body, soul, and spirit. And so what this psalm does not say, it doesn't say the pill doesn't matter, but what it does say is the pill is not enough. We're spiritual beings with spiritual problems in need of spiritual solutions. So that's just one amazing truth that that this psalm tells you right off the bat. And then one more thing I want to point out here. The other thing that's amazing to me about this is that the Bible actually shows through this psalm that it is okay to just be honest about where you're at in your spiritual journey. I mean, this psalm comes right out the gate, and it actually admits and acknowledges and names the fact that this guy is going through a season of depression. Um, and, and, and just, just kind of by way of tangent, 
you know, you, you guys, if you've been around, know that we've been going through the Psalms the last couple of weeks. When we put the series together, I, I first kind of tried to have some kind of rhyme or reason to the whole thing and kind of started out with, you know, an introduction to, okay, what, you know, what does prayer mean? And, and, and uh, you know, just kind of some introductory things. I just want to, I don't want to warn you that just going forward, it's probably going to feel a little bit more like a grab bag where I'm just going to be picking different, different Psalms that are just representative of different types of prayers. I want to tell you tonight that Psalm 42 is an example of a certain kind of prayer that in the Bible uh, you could call a lament. And, and tons of the Psalms are, are these. They're, they're laments. You know, there's some like this one that are individual laments. Uh, there are other ones that are corporate laments. You know, it's like a whole group of people crying out to God. And I just, do you, do you realize what a miracle it is that this kind of prayer is in the Bible? Because think about what a lament is. Like when you are lamenting something, what you're saying to God is you're saying, God, everything is not okay down here. I mean, don't you see all the pain, all the grief, all the injustice? Aren't you going to do something about it? This is the exact kind of prayer that we need in America right now. And they're all over the Psalms. They're all over the Psalms. And the fact that they're all over the Psalms is an indication that the Bible lets us pray to God like this. And it shows us that the Bible is actually very, very different than a lot of religious people. Because a lot of religious people say, well, if you have feelings, what you're supposed to do is to stuff your feelings. You know, don't you dare admit doubt. Don't you dare admit fear or discouragement. Don't you know that you have to have faith. Don't you know that you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. The Bible doesn't do that. And it also doesn't do what our secular culture says, which says the opposite. The secular culture says, worship your feelings. Your feelings are you. Don't let anyone challenge what you feel to be true. The Bible doesn't do either of those things. Instead, what the Bible says is, it says, take your feelings to God. You can own them. You can acknowledge them. You don't have to stuff them, but take them to God, even when it's lament. So right off the bat, I just want to, I just want to, point out that it's incredible to even find a prayer like this in the Bible because it's a completely different approach to depression than the approach that maybe many of us, especially those of us who might have grown up in more religious, religious, uh, rigid religious households may have grown up with. So that's the, that's the first P. The, the, the psalm gives you a little bit of a, an indication of exactly what spiritual depression looks like. The second thing it gives you here is not just what the problem is, it now gives you a path through it. So the second P here is the prescription. And uh, this is verses 5 through 11. So look at verse 5, where it kind of starts out by, by, by changing tax and then beginning to give you some tools to, to, to work through all this. Verse 5 says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So, so here, and from basically here all the way down to the very end of this psalm, you get two basic strategies for what it looks like to walk with God through depression and through discouragement. Um, I don't know if any of you ever would have, um, any of you grew up reading the children's book, Going on a Bear Hunt? Okay, well, I'm assuming that means someone did. Anyone else? Raise, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, Going on a Bear Hunt. Yeah, okay. I, I don't even remember what the book's about. I think it's about going on a bear hunt. <laughs> but there's this line that's repeated in the book, you know, over and over again. And, and you know, they're, they're going through the woods or they're going through the, 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 the swamp or whatever. They're looking for the, the bear. And, you know, there's a big log or something in the middle of the path. And, and the, the, the line is, can't go over it. 
Can't go under it. Can't go around it. Got to go through it. And very, very often, this is exactly what it's like to walk with God. God doesn't actually say like, hey, I'm going to allow you to jump over this one. But instead, what I will do is I'm going to walk with you through it. I want to show you my presence. And I want to give you the grace that you need to walk through this to the other side. And so there are two strategies here in this psalm uh, that he gives. The first strategy is actually a little bit, uh, it's so obvious you might have missed it, but the first strategy is that the psalmist talks to himself. So uh, in verse 5, do you notice, by the way, who, who he's speaking to? He's speaking to his own soul. He's both listening to his soul, but he's also then talking back to his soul. And what's happening here, and when he does this, is really significant because, you know, I don't know if anyone here has actually been through depression. I don't know if anyone here is actually going through depression right now. Um, When I was in high school, I actually did go through a period of probably about 18 months where where I did experience some depression. And and so I can tell you that very, very often a season like that is a serious, a season that's marked by kind of this cyclic pattern where you have like one negative emotion that leads to another negative emotion that leads to another negative emotion. It just kind of takes you deeper and deeper and deeper until it seems like there's no way out. But what happens here in verse five is totally profound because what happens is the cycle gets interrupted. The guy stops himself and he says, hang on, like, wait a minute. Hold, you know, am I, am I really going to buy in to everything that my emotions are telling me or is that really the whole truth? What, what, what's happening here is that instead of taking his own feelings, his own emotions as gospel truth, he stops and, 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 and humbly is willing to admit that maybe my feelings are not actually the entirety of what's real. Maybe all the things that I'm feeling are, are not necessarily the same thing as reality. Uh, you know, the, there was a famous British preacher, a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Most of your unhappiness in life is because you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. And if you want to know where you got that idea from, you probably got it from this psalm right here. Because what, what Psalm 42 is saying is that what we all need to learn to do is to learn to preach to ourselves. We need to learn to interrupt the flow of emotions and to say to ourselves like, remember what's true. Like, don't lose hold of the things that you, you know to be true. And so this is what the psalmist is doing here. And what I want to show you is just give a quick rundown of some of the things he actually tells himself. So number one, he reminds himself that the, the season of spiritual dryness is not going to last. So at the end of verse five, he says, put your hope in God for I will yet praise him. And if, you know, translation, what he's saying is he's saying, I'm going to get through this. Like one day, this is going to be over. I'm going to be on the other side of this. Um, just, you know, for me personally, a, a verse in the Bible that has been a real encouragement to me many, many times is a verse in Hebrews chapter 12. And it's a verse where it's talking about how God puts us through times of trial in order to grow us. And the verse says, no discipline or, or no trial feels pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And what I love about this verse is that it's such a straight shooting verse. I mean, like, it's so honest and saying, like, look, hard times are hard. You know, like, no discipline, no trial actually feels pleasant at the time you're going through it. But then it also says later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. So, so notice it doesn't say it might produce a harvest. It doesn't say it may produce a harvest. It says it will produce a harvest. 
And that's an incredible promise that if you're actually willing to, to allow God to take you through some kind of time of difficulty, he's going to bring a harvest on the other side of that. That's a promise of scripture. And so the first thing that he tells himself, he says, look, I'm, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through this. Second thing he tells himself, he reminds himself that the God that he's praying to is a God who is for him, a God who has not abandoned him and a God who has not rejected him. You know, there's a couple of reasons I say that. First of all, you, you might notice here that there's a question he's asking. He's saying, you know, that this why question, you know, why is my soul so downcast? Like, why am I so discouraged? You know, he's basically saying, like, why am I so sad? And did you notice that at no point in the psalm does he ever give an answer to that? It doesn't actually tell you, you know, oh, the reason you're so sad is because, you know, of this thing or that thing or because of this sin or because of that sin. What the psalmist recognizes is that suffering doesn't necessarily mean that he's being punished for something. And that means that it's totally possible that you can be going through a time of spiritual dryness and it totally is not because like you made a wrong turn somewhere or because like you somehow like did this really, really bad thing and now God is punishing you for it. I mean, this is what the whole book of Job says. Like Job is this guy and like God looks at Job and he says, this guy is perfect. And then the whole book's about how he suffers. <laughs> so he, 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 he reminds himself that like God is not out to get me. You know, it's not that he's out here to punish me. At the, at the end of the verse, he says, this God, he's my savior. He's my God. He's reminding himself, even though I can't feel God, even though I, I, I don't see him working in my life right now, I'm going to remind myself of who I know him to be. Uh, I feel a little embarrassed about this next thing I'm going to share. But uh, back when I was a kid, um, there was a, a, an old cat in a hat cartoon that I grew up watching. Um, I don't know if anyone of you, it's really old. It's like from 1971. Basically, what, 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 uh, my, my, my one predominant memory of this little kid cartoon from growing up was there was this song that, that, that they included in this cartoon halfway through, and it was this song called Calculatus Eliminatus. And, and the, 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 the story of the song was that, you know, there, there's the cat in the hat, and he's come to visit the house of this, these two kids, this brother and sister. And the brother and sister, like, they, like they, the, the, one of them has lost something, and so the cat in the hat tries to go around the house and help them find the thing. And, and he sings this song called Calculatus Eliminatus. And, and it's this really dumb song. And, and you know, the, one of the, the lines in the chorus says, uh, you know, the, the, the Calculatus Eliminatus is the best friend that you've got. The only way to find the missing something is to find out where it's not. And, uh, you know, as they're singing the song, what they do is they go all around the, the, the house. And they, and they find all the places where the missing object isn't. You know, so it's like it's not under the refrigerator. It's not on the sofa or whatever. And, and, you know, they reason, well, hey, if we can find all the places where the thing isn't, ergo, we're going to find the place where the thing is. Calculatus eliminatus. As stupid as all this is, this is exactly what Psalm 42 is doing. He's playing a game of calculatus eliminatus. He's saying, look, you know, I, I, here's what I know to be true. I know that God is good. Like, I know that he's my savior. I know that he's my God. I know that he died on a cross for me. And so if that's true, well, then... I can, you know, by extension, I can rule out all the other lies that might be thrown at me. Like, I know, therefore, that he's not abandoned me. I know, therefore, he hasn't rejected me. This is kind of this process of elimination. And so the question that, that, that I want to pose to all of you is, look, are you doing this? Do you preach to yourself? Or are you merely listening 
to yourself? Are you allowing just all of the different circumstances, all of the different feelings and emotions to be at the helm of your life? Or are you, are you doing what Psalm 42 is doing and, and talking back to your heart, saying to your heart, here is what the truth is. So the first strategy in this Psalm, number one, he talks to himself. Number two, second strategy, he doesn't talk just to himself, he talks to God. Uh, so in verse six, you might notice that all of a sudden it switches into the second person. He starts talking to God. He says, God, you are all these things. You are this, you are that. And uh, I, I just want to read this here. So uh, verse six, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. So this is the scene of, of, of exile uh, where you know, he's kind of imagining himself, or maybe he actually really is in this, this, this place, but he's imagining himself outside the land of Israel. That's what the land of the Jordan means. And, and you know, it's almost as though he's maybe sitting right next to the Jordan River and all of these waves, all of these, you know, the, this rush of water is rushing past him. And it's as though he's kind of imagining each one of those waves to just be like the trials that are pounding away at his soul. And while he's sitting there, he has this really profound little dialogue with God. And he says... God, here I am, and I've got all of these sorrows that are just crashing like waves against me. But in verse 7, do you notice what he says here? He says, God, these are your waves. These are your breakers. You know, God, right now it feels like all of these trials are meant to destroy me. But, but what if they're actually your way to perfect me? What if these waves are actually a gift from you? And this is why it's so important to notice that... that he doesn't just talk to himself, but he also talks to God. Because what, what he's doing is he's saying, you know, here I am in the thick of this, and I'm not going to turn away from God. Instead, I'm going to turn toward him. Instead of actually just saying, you know, this is just one more excuse to walk away. This is actually an opportunity to just take my, 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 my grief before God and to pour out my heart to him, knowing that he wants to listen and he will receive me. You know, if you've ever read the book of Job, one of, one of the things about that book that's a little unusual that you might kind of wonder about at the end is why at the end of the book of Job does God praise Job, but then he rebukes Job's three friends? You know, the entire book, Job has been basically venting and shouting and, and like basically saying all of these really harsh things about God. And so at the end of the book, you know, why, why would God praise Job when he's been saying all this kind of blasphemous stuff? And the answer is because Job took all of that anger. He took all of that confusion. He took all of that heartache and he prayed it back to God. He took all of those things and instead of turning away from God, he turned toward God. And this is why when Jesus died on the cross, perhaps the most profound thing that passed through his mouth, his lips, while he hung there were the pronouns. He didn't say, why did God forsake me? He said, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Even in the moment where he felt most separated from God, he's praying. Jesus Christ died praying. So, we're almost to the end here. Strategy number one, he talks to himself. He says, look, I, need to, I just need to like be sure that like I'm refreshing my, my heart here with what I actually know to be true. Second thing he does, he takes all those things to God. He talks to God. But then finally, um, there, there's one final P in this psalm, and that's not, not just the problem, not just the prescription. There's also a physician. There's a physician. 
And the reason that I, I want to end on this is because all of what we've looked at so far actually still leaves the question open to us. And the question is, you know, how do we actually know any of this is real? Because, you know, there's been this whirlwind diagnosis of, of what spiritual dryness is, and here's some still things about how to get through it. But look, you know, there's nothing that actually would guarantee that any of this stuff actually really is effective or that actually does anything unless God is who he says he is. Unless God is who he says he is. Unless we have a great physician who loves us so much, who cares about us so much, that he actually didn't just give us a book with a bunch of, 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 of cures and prescriptions, but no, he actually came down and meets us in every valley and every trial that we go through. And, and so look at this psalm now through that lens. You know, down through the ages of when people read this psalm, one of the questions that's been asked is, who, who actually is talking? Though? Is this David? Is this, uh, you know, there, there are these guys, the sons of Korah that, that are mentioned in, in this psalm. You know, is it just that it's for any old person who, who picks it up and can kind of apply the words to himself or to herself? And, and all those answers probably have some validity to them. But what if, what if the person that is speaking in this psalm is actually a glimpse of the gospel? What if the person speaking the words of this psalm might actually be none other than Jesus himself? Now, the reason I say this is because 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into a world where he lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you should have died. And when he hung on the cross, naked, bleeding, and dying, he said, I thirst. And Jesus didn't say that just because he was physically thirsty. He said it because like in this psalm, he was spiritually thirsty. And not just spiritually thirsty, Jesus Christ on the cross was cosmically thirsty. On the cross, all of God's waves and breakers crashed over his head. Because on the cross, all of God's justice, all of his wrath against all of the, 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 the twisted, sinful, unjust things that human beings have done, that we have done, all of those things were on Jesus. And the first, you know, Jesus was on the cross for six hours. And you can divide that, that period in half because for the first three hours, you know, it describes all of the people who are watching Jesus, the very people that he loved, that he had come to die for, that he had come to die for them. There they are and they're mocking him. They're, they're scorning him. You know, just think of the, the fact that on the one hand, he's got the physical torture of crucifixion, the most painful way that you could have died at, in, in that time. And then on top of that, he has the emotional torture of the very people that he loved and was dying for. They're publicly shaming him. I don't know if any of you have ever been publicly shamed. You know, maybe you said something on Facebook that other people didn't like. It seems like most anything you say on Facebook these days can get publicly shamed. Jesus Christ endured the worst kind of public shaming you can possibly imagine. And that's just the first half. The second half, as it says, darkness descended from, from the heavens. Without any of those other agonies abating, in those three hours, in the short span of 180 minutes, Jesus experienced all the concentrated horrors of hell. And they were multiplied times every single one of the billions of human beings throughout history who deserved to be on that cross instead. And so when Jesus Christ says, I thirst, it's a cosmic thirst because he has been completely cut off from every source of life there is. <clears throat> View that closing scene of anguish. All God's waves and billows roll. Over him they're left to languish on the cross to save my soul. Matchless love, how vast, how free. 
Jesus gave himself for me. And that hymn is a perfect description with language taken from this psalm of what it was that Jesus experienced. And the reason he did all of that was so that one day our spiritual thirst would once and for all be satisfied. He thirsted so that we would never have to know thirst. I mean, don't you realize that he loves you? Don't you realize the, the, the links that he went to in order to be our great physician? And just as we close here, I just want to ask if you've responded to that. You know, this, this psalm says that we're not just physical beings. It says that we're spiritual beings. And what that means is that deep down, every single person in this world has a thirst that, that only God is able to satisfy. You know, there, there's a, a famous Christian who once said that God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. And man, I just think through this psalm tonight, God just is saying to all of us, come and drink. Come and drink. You know, if your soul is thirsty, if you have never actually felt like, like you have had that kind of deep satisfaction, that, that, that satisfaction that goes down to a deep spiritual level, then maybe this is Jesus inviting you to actually say, I want that. I want to invite you to fill me to overflowing so that I will never have to know thirst again. He thirsted so that you would never have to. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move into small groups. Lord, thank you that you were so willing to love us, to die for us, that you went through all that so that we might have our souls satisfied once and for all. Lord, would you help us to thirst more deeply for you and to know more deeply the satisfaction that you have provided through what your son Jesus did on the cross. And it's in his name that I pray this. Amen.